Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Welcome to Codish. I'm Sandy Lai, a customer solutions architect at Heroku. My team helps customers plan, scale, and run their apps successfully on Heroku. Today, we are going to talk about security, scaling, and some unique challenges to bringing better tech to education. Joining us are Ben Small and Mitch Peabody from Panorama Education, a powerful platform that supports student success. Could you tell us a bit about yourselves? Uh, Absolutely. My name is uh, Ben Small. I am a software engineer here at Panorama Education. Uh, I've been with Panorama for about two and a half years at this point, um, and I work on our support and uh, security teams. Hi, uh, I'm Mitch Peabody. I'm an engineering manager at Panorama Education as well. I've been here three and a half years now. I help run our infrastructure squad and am also on the security team. Um, How about a little bit more about Panorama Education? Panorama helps educators, teachers, and, and, and principals and counselors to understand their students and their community better uh, by offering um, feedback surveys for the school community to take and offer feedback. Also to measure students' social-emotional learning so that those students um, can be better supported in their social-emotional growth. And finally, uh, Panorama offers a uh, data dashboard and multi-tiered system of support um, platform that allows educators to more effectively uh, identify which students are most in need of acute support and provide and track uh, which supports are being given to which students so that they can uh, efficiently and successfully make sure that every child succeeds. That's amazing. Like I, I have to say the, the the software looks amazing and I wish something like this had existed back when I used to be a school teacher. So very excited to be talking with you today. As we're talking about adopting new technology, that can be pretty tough in any industry. How do you prepare schools to adopt your software successfully? Many schools still do lots of things manually. Um, they keep track of data on paper. There is not uh, enough digital penetration into the school system. So there may be a computer lab, but an individual student might see that computer lab um, you know, once a week, maybe. Um, so we've had to do a lot to figure out how to blend sort of old school paper needs with the capabilities that a cloud platform can present for schools. We do that pretty well. Um, and we, we make sure to tailor our offerings to these schools based on the level of digital architecture that they have mm-hmm. in place, right? So for the service example, if a school has uh, a computer for each student, it's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, each student should take a survey on their laptop. And for a school that maybe has one computer cart that they share amongst the entire school, uh, we can say, you know, we understand that this, this information is still important to you. So uh, let us work with you to generate paper artifacts, paper surveys that students can still give this sort of valuable feedback 
uh, in a way that supports the school's needs. Sounds like a very interesting problem. Um, and, and you must work with schools kind of throughout the country, located in various places and that. So could, could you tell us a bit more about um, how you're integrating your software with different school systems? Yeah. So mainly for our student success offering, we uh, encounter different types of uh, SIS or school uh, information systems or student information systems that vary largely by region. Um, so schools that do have a certain amount of technology that they use to track the progress of their students uh, have adopted like many varying platforms, sometimes even within the same like school district or uh, same school, they'll use like two or three different platforms that we um, have built technology to uh, pull the data into our system, into our platform in order to provide the kind of holistic and uh, individual views of the students to the schools. So it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of customization that you need to do depending on, on what, who you're working with. Uh, yeah, so our team um, spends uh, quite a bit of time like figuring out uh, if we encounter like a new platform, um, we have to do some exploration and figure out like what data is contained within the platform, how to interpret it. Also, I think more basically how to actually extract the data. Mm. And what we try to work towards is uh, kind of a, a faster um, integration time. Okay, so I guess you, you come up with playbooks and that's so that you can reuse them for the next time you encounter the same sort of systems. Yeah, I would say playbooks to start, but then we've really tried to start automating um, and putting a lot of the configuration power for these different data systems into the hands of non-technical users at our company. That's great. Um, you did mention about you know looking into how to work with their data and that, and I imagine that schools would be pretty concerned about things like data privacy and security, um, which makes a lot of sense. So how do you address these with and for your customers? Schools are rightfully extremely cautious about uh, what data they're sharing and with whom they're sharing that data. Uh, we're talking about kids, right? Especially over the last few years, schools have become a lot more um, wise to the dangers that are out there with the rise of ransomware and a lot more savvy about knowing and asking the right questions uh, about, you know, who is going to have access to this data? What are they allowed to do with it? Who are they allowed to share it with? One thing that I think is really uh, wonderful and encouraging are that schools are talking to each other about this a lot. There are some uh, consortiums that have been formed out there between essentially the IT leaders of schools to talk to each other about like, you know, uh, who do you work with? Who do you not work with? What sorts of restrictions do you put on those companies that uh, that you decide to trust? It's extremely important, right? It's extremely important because we talk about data privacy and data security as a society a lot, but often uh, it's in the context of of adults or what we do on our smartphones. But this is like, oh, a student took a quiz and he failed that quiz and he feels really bad about failing that quiz. And the consequences of all of that school data in aggregate being compromised are extremely drastic. I, I consider ourselves pretty fortunate Security and privacy are top of mind for our leadership team, for our CEO, across the company. To address these questions, these concerns, and these these issues, we've created um, a working group of security-minded professionals from across Panorama. 
So it's not just a group of engineers figuring out how to secure the data. It's a group of engineers sitting with our outreach team and sitting with our client success team talking about, you know, from the very start of this process to the very end of this process, how do we effectively protect and defend the data that we collect? Tell us more about this security working group. Like, where did it come from? Where did it come about? So when I started at Panorama, we it was also coincided with the start of our student success platform, which is where um, we started pulling in a lot of sensitive student data. And we recognized uh, early on that uh, we needed to step up a security game. And so uh, myself uh, and a couple of other engineers and our VP of engineering and our director of operations uh, started the security working group. And we started meeting weekly and we initially started by building a bucket list of like all the things where we thought uh, we could improve and the places that we needed to pay attention. And from that, we figured out where were the changes and processes and things that we could implement that would have the highest leverage. I went into it as an engineer thinking, oh, we're going to do like cool like penetration testing and we're going to like do algorithms and stuff. Um, And it wound up being the case that where we found the highest leverage activities that we could undertake would be uh, developing very clear and concrete uh, security policies for internal use at the company so that our employees understood, you know, good security practices um, and what they should and should not be doing. Um, we also implemented uh, an annual training program and onboarding program. So every Panorama employee, uh, when they first start at the company goes through a security onboarding uh, within the first three to four days. It's a training of like, here are the things that you need to know about how to be secure with your work and how to treat and approach privacy concerns with our clients, um, with schools. And we also repeat this training uh, annually for all employees. In fact, we just had our annual retraining earlier this week. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like you've taken a really holistic approach to attacking it from a bunch of different levels to make sure you're covered on all your bases. That's fantastic. Can you tell us about some other unique challenges that your company might face as it's trying to bring this technology into the education? Absolutely. One aspect of offering surveys to students so that the students can make sure their voice gets heard um, is that we need to make sure that all students can make their voice be heard. This means, you know, if a student isn't fluent in English, we have a responsibility to make sure that student has the ability to make their voice heard uh, regardless. So our language support is quite impressive. We support upwards of 100 languages, I believe, um, across the platform. And it's something that our clients uh, request of us because a principal knows that if they're collecting feedback uh, on how their school is doing and they're missing an entire population of students who can't respond, then they're missing an extremely important voice and an extremely important uh, aspect of diversity in their responses. Beyond that, our platform 
needs to be accessible in lots of different ways as well. So, you know, fully compliant and functional with screen readers and other uh, accessibility tools. Um, so making sure that, you know, when we purport to say that we help to elevate student voice, we need to make sure that we can support every single student's voice. What about things like uh, scaling? Is that a challenge for, for your company? Yes, I would say absolutely um, from a few different dimensions. So because we work with schools, we have seasonality effects, um, particularly with uh, surveys where um, these are kind of like events where a lot of students are taking a survey at the same time. And they tend to coincide with mm -hmm. the start of the school year and also towards the end of the school year. So like our team gets pretty busy around the August through, I would say, October, November timeframe. And then there's like a little bit of a lull. And then it starts ramping up again about this time, actually. Um, and we'll, it'll be, it'll continue ramping up until we hit about May, June, and then it'll like taper off. Um, so that's like one aspect of our scaling. Uh, another aspect that I think we've started feeling more acutely is that for our system that pulls in data from the SIS systems, the uh, integration um, pipeline, um, that has some unique uh, like scaling concerns in that it processes a lot of data every single day. And we use a methodology called event sourcing, which has placed a certain amount of computational strain on our system that we didn't have with our surveys platform. We've found as we've been ramping up this platform over the past three years that uh, it's starting to be the majority driver of our cost increases. But the other dimension that we're encountering is that uh, scaling our engineering team um, specifically um, and Panorama as a whole. When I started, we were at around the 60 employee mark um, with 12-ish engineers, and we are approaching 40 engineers and over 160 people, I believe, at Panorama. So Quite the growth. Yeah, so it's rapid growth. It's not like adding a 1,000 employees, but it's definitely introducing changes to the way that we have to organize and communicate, um, and particularly with engineering, where now uh, it's actually very possible, and I've seen this with other engineers of how do you transfer and ensure that knowledge that has been locked up in heads uh, just due to like moving quickly and maybe not taking the care to document things? How do you make sure that that gets transferred to all the engineer engineers? And how do you have your hiring processes scale? How do you have your training processes scale? All sorts of fun challenges. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point. When people think of scaling, it's usually usually think of just the technical side of things, but there's definitely a people aspect too when you're thinking about scaling and, and all that that entails. I do feel like a lot of the listeners are probably very interested in maybe the the technical uh, side of that scaling. Would you mind telling us a bit more about um, what you've been doing on that level to address the various issues that you, you've encountered? One specific thing that we do is proactive load testing to prepare for anticipated usage spikes. So I think Mitch mentioned the seasonality of our work. We can actually get more granular um, than that. So uh, one thing we're working on this week is a school district has said, you know, we have 100,000 students and we want all those students to go on to the website at exactly the same time and take the survey. 
to the engineering team, that sounds like, okay, we're going to have 100,000 hits at exactly the same time. Uh, let's make sure our servers don't fall over. So we have systems uh, in place to simulate uh, that load. So we can create a script that essentially mimics a single workflow and duplicate that across dozens of different machines in a big pool and make it all crash into our server at the same time to say, what sort of performance metrics are we seeing? Do we need to scale out our server pool um, or can the infrastructure that we sort of normally run day to day handle it properly? The other time that we do proactive load testing is often when we're releasing new features. So if there's some new feature that we expect to be more computationally difficult, we can do a similar analysis. Also, some by using backend instrumentation, we can look at the performance profiles of how this feature is expected to run times the number of people that are expected to use it times some fudging factor to you know make sure we're actually safe and then we respond appropriately by saying oh we need to up the power of our database or we need to increase the power of our servers the number of servers that we're running well, i think you bring up a really good point there with proactive load testing when you're releasing a new feature uh, i feel like a lot of people like sure it might come to their head that you know if they know that there's going to be high usage they know it's going to go and low test, but I don't think as many people think of doing that when, when we're talking about just releasing a new feature. Um, so that's a great tip for, for people um, to take into account. To be perfectly clear, we don't do it for every new feature that we release. We probably could, but it gets a little expensive at that point um, with the, mm -hmm. the server time and all the simulations. But you know, we have a reasonably good idea of what features are add negligible complexity and what features are really quite heavy. And we try to do a good job of when we are dealing with those heavy features to be a little bit more intentional about making sure that we are providing a stable service to our clients. Uh, how about uh, your data? We've mentioned data a few times. I imagine you must be working with tons of data. Um, so what are the, uh, how you're addressing scaling in, in terms of that? Yeah. So when it comes to our databases, like we look at it from uh, two sides, the, the right side and the read side, which I don't think comes as a surprise to anyone. From the read side, like as Ben was alluding to, when we release a new feature, uh, we'll generally have a good sense for like whether or not it's going to be slow and if we should be more proactive about our load testing. And usually a, a good solid indicator is how much it was going to hit the database with queries. When we have a uh, slowness that shows up. Um, and one of the things that we look for is like what queries are being performed when that page is being loaded and like running some analyze, uh, you know, analysis on the queries and making sure that we have indexes in the right place and that we've, you know, we use Postgres so we make sure that our auto vacuum settings are tuned appropriately. And then on the right side, one of the things that we've been doing lately uh, is I mentioned that our ingest pipeline is one of the drivers of, of cost. And that's because one of the things it does is it goes through a ton of data files and it writes a bunch of rows to our database every single day. Until recently, um, that was largely done row by row. So read a data file, we'd compute what's known as like a, a diff or a delta of like what's changed over the, uh, over the previous day um, and use that to uh, insert or update rows in the database. One of my uh, squads have been testing a batched update system. So 
rather than um, have a, a fleet of machines all hitting the database at the same time. So they each have a database connection that they're using to put data into the same database. Um, they are batching up the writes on local uh, key value stores. Um, and then after all that processing is done, doing a mass batch update from those uh, individual servers into the, the database, which results in like ultimately uh, overall faster write times and less contention for database connections. And so that's actually work that's in progress right now. And we're seeing pretty significant improvements in our refresh times um, going from like several hours down to like an hour. Nice. The other piece that we are able to take into account because of the specifics of our industry um, is that schools and teachers, they, they do some work at the end of the day, they close things down, they go to bed, and then when the school day starts up the next day, they expect everything to look uh, refreshed and, and correct. But because we have so many different clients across so many different time zones, we can actually use that to our advantage and you know kick off the processing needs of our Eastern time zone clients first and work our way west across the country so that uh, instead of scheduling all our jobs at the same time, we, we spread it out so that each group sort of has the best opportunity to be ready by the time that the data is needed. So Boston and New York are going to get their, their stuff done first, and Hawaii will get it done a few hours later. But to the folks in those time zones, it's uh, the same experience. What do you do in terms of like, what's your monitoring strategy? You mentioned looking at metrics, of course, when you're doing your load testing and other things like that, but just kind of in general, what does your monitoring strategy entail? I would say that we have a, a pretty heterogeneous approach right now. So we use uh, Heroku, which has uh, quite a bit of monitoring already built in. Um, and we use a, a number of third-party add-ons uh, to allow us to like look at uh, log traces um, to look at uh, basic machine level kind of metrics, so like load, number of connections um, for our web apps, like what are the uh, status codes that we're uh, seeing. Um, we also uh, use like a pager duty system for like if we see errors that are critical that are impacting the ability of our users to actually access the platform, it'll uh, alert an engineer and say, there's something to look at here, this is concerning, um, and we'll be in a reactive mode. Where we're at right now is um, we're trying to become a little bit more proactive. So rather than waiting for problems to crop up, we create a view of our system that is going to allow us to say, uh, oh, I see you know, X, Y, and Z metrics are behaving this way at this moment this is a signal that I know portends maybe something more serious occurring down the line, so I'm going to get in front of it. The development of those that monitoring capability is something that's still kind of ongoing, and I think Ben's squad has also like put some thought into it as well. Yeah, um, on the engineering team, we have the most direct communication with clients, and so um, being able to uh, go to a client before they notice a problem or be able to fix a problem before we have to go to a client is even better. But being able to go to a client and say, like, we know that these users experienced issues, we've already identified the problem, and we've already fixed it, 
have a wonderful day, you know, is a, a much better experience from their perspective than them having to call us and say, you know, hey, I'm trying to use your website and nothing's working. What's going on? Getting ahead of that curve and being more proactive and being able to detect problems before they start or as they're starting, as opposed to when downstream users notice the ramifications of them is something that we're definitely uh, investing in and trying to improve right now. Well, you've talked a lot about the scaling, security, uh, and everything else. Um, do either of you have any more advice you can give to people that need similar levels of scalability or security needs? One thing that I've found uh, that we do that's really helpful that I would recommend um, for anyone, regardless of the the level of maturity of your um, security programs and your security needs, is to, first of all, have a written down plan for what happens when you need to figure out whether something went wrong and practice that plan. So we run security and privacy drills all the time at Panorama. Um, and we do it not because we're expecting something to go wrong, but because if and when something does go wrong, we want to be able to address it with a level head um, and not be freaking out and not knowing what to do sort of having that experience under your belt really, really helps to make sure you respond to situations effectively and quickly and appropriately when they do arise. And I would add to that practice them um, also for outages, not just security drills, but as you practice them, make sure that you take the time at the end of the practice to like figure out what should have happened, what happened, um, and what you could do better than next time. Um, so rather than just say, go through the motions, you actually use it as a learning opportunity and use it to improve your processes. The one thing I'll add to that is um, when you're thinking about what you'll do better next time, don't think of it in terms of what you'll do better next time. Think of it in terms of how you can improve your documentation and how you can improve your processes so that it's easier for the person who does this the next time to fall into doing the right thing. Going into those meetings and saying like, oh yeah, well, I did this wrong, but don't worry, I'll do better next time. It's a great sentiment, but it's not addressing the core of the issue, which is that, um, yeah. The system was not uh, correct. So I stepping up a level, like one of the things that I think we do really well as an engineering engineering team at Panorama is we don't um, place the blame or seek to place the blame on individual engineers. Um, our ethos is that if someone was able to do something that impacted our systems to the extent that it brings them down or uh, otherwise causes difficulty for our users, then it's a problem in our engineering processes and not any particular engineer. And so, you know, bring this back down to the outage protocols and the, and the security um, protocols that Ben's kind of talking about. We're not seeking to like say, have people say, oh, I did this or I did that. Um, it's more like, what can we do better so that when stuff really is going wrong and people are already at high levels of stress, we have something that anyone can refer to and very quickly figure out what they should be doing. Um, and that's an ongoing process and we're always improving it. Yeah, I think that's super important to to create that blameless culture, as you said. And of course, documentation is, I love documentation. So hearing this makes me all very, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's something that um, as we started scaling our engineering team, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, where being able to transfer that knowledge um, without necessarily having the same people in the room 
um, is extremely important because like it's just not possible as you have 40 engineers for everyone to talk to everyone else at the same time whenever they uh, need a bit of information or to uh, expect that one person is the storehouse of all knowledge about a particular aspect of the system. And of course, it makes sense for an education tech company to be concerned about their employee education as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We, we preach growth mindset for our students and for ourselves. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us some of your challenges and solutions. Uh, listeners, you can learn more about Panorama Education at panoramaed.com. Thank you, Ben and Mitch, for joining us today. It has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.